Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you, a land with large flourishing cities you didn't build and houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a a gracious and a loving God who meets us and who makes uh, himself known to us. And Father, we ask that you would do that now, that you would make yourself known to us uh, as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God uh, in three persons. Uh, Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, As with the last few weeks, there's a handout uh, that you hopefully received with some Bible verses on that and some other stuff on the back as well uh, that you might like to have with you as we're going through. Well, uh, as Graham said this morning, we're thinking about the Trinity, that is God, one God and three persons. And there's no doubt that that's probably one of the hardest things uh, for us as Christians to understand. It's one of the hardest things about Christianity, I think. Uh, In terms of sharing the gospel with people, whether uh, it's a Jew or whether it's a Muslim or whether it's an atheist or even an agnostic, it's a huge stumbling block to say to to somebody, God is one God, but actually uh, three distinct persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And yet that idea is really at the core of the teaching, the Bible's teaching about who God is, and it's really at the core of the gospel, the work of the gospel, God's great plan of salvation. But what I want to try to do, uh, to begin to do this morning, is to show that the Trinity is not just an idea that we have in our heads, it's not just an idea that we can have on our kind of theological bookshelves, the theological bookshelves of our minds, it's actually the very thing which enables us to understand how we relate to God. Uh, And in the coming weeks, hopefully, we'll also see how the Trinity is the very thing that makes uh, sense of the gospel as well. So today we're just thinking about that idea that God is one God and yet three persons and then in the weeks to come we'll be looking at uh, God the Father and then the week after that God the Son and then uh, the week after that God the Holy Spirit. Now you might find this morning a bit challenging, there's no doubt that the, uh, the kind of understanding the Trinity is hard work uh, but try and stick with it. Um, 
it's just hard to understand. I, I always say to people, I remember when I was at university, this is just a completely irrelevant story, but I remember when I was at university and I sat in lectures for about, for four years, I sat in lectures for, no, it was about the first two and a half years thinking that I was the biggest idiot in the world because I didn't understand a word of what was going on in any of the lectures. I thought, and I looked around the room and I thought, crumbs, everyone else looks like they understand. And I go to tutorials and everyone else would be beavering away at the work and I'd be like, I haven't got a clue what I'm supposed to be doing. And it wasn't until I started getting marks back. It took me two years of getting marks back from courses where I'd passed courses, you know, and actually done relatively well. I suddenly thought, actually, maybe it's just really hard and it takes a bit of time to understand what's going on. Maybe I'm not as stupid as I thought. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, I'm an idiot, I don't understand anything, it's just one of those subjects that takes a lot of time for us to come to terms with. So stick with it, and, and, and I guarantee you it will be helpful. Well, one of the most fundamental ideas in the Bible is the idea that there is one God. That's in lots of places. It was in the passage that we just read from Deuteronomy 6 in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God, one Lord. Uh, or Zechariah 9, the, one of the passages on the handout. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord. And his name, the only name. So Zechariah is looking forward to a day when all the people on the earth will acknowledge that there is only one God. There's just one God. And that there will be a day when there will be no other kind of fake gods, no other uh, uh, fake gods that people pretend are real gods. There's only one God. Or Deuteronomy 32.29. See, God says, see now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. There's no other God. Or Isaiah 44, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last, apart from me there is no God, there's no other God. That idea that God is one and that God alone is God is not just kind of a point of academic interest, it's a point of practical significance. So listen to what comes after again, listen again to what comes after in Deuteronomy 6. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's the truth, and here's the application. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Then verse 13, fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of these people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. God is the only God and he's jealous for our love and allegiance because, of, because he's the only God. In other words, God doesn't just want us to be able to explain to people the idea of the Trinity. What God really wants is to love, for us to love him as the one and only God and to love no other God beside him and to serve no other God beside him. He wants us to love him with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, with all our strength. That is, with every fibre of our being. He wants us to love him rather than to love ourselves. He wants us to love him rather than our money. He wants us to love him rather than our lives. God is the only God. There is no other God. If we walk away from here and, we've, and, and we can say to people, there is only one God, the God of the Bible, well, that's a great start, isn't it? But if we fail to love that God, we've missed the point. 
the core application of the doctrine of the Trinity is there is one God and we need to love that God with all of our being. And if, we've, if we're not living that way, then we've missed the point. God is jealous for our love. And rightly so, because he made us for that very purpose that we might love him and know and receive the great joy that comes from loving him. So there's that core truth, God is one, and yet as we read the Bible, the truth that God is one is pushed and expanded by this revelation, this unfolding, that God is somehow not just one, but also somehow Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the beginning of the Bible, that idea is just kind of a shadow. There's just a kind of a glimpse of that. It's there, but it's kind of obscure. I love what B.B. Warfield, who was a Christian theologian, he had this great saying, which was, the Trinity in the Old Testament is like a room richly furnished but dimly lit. The Trinity in the Old Testament is like a room richly furnished but dimly lit. That is, all the furniture's there, but it's just the light hasn't quite been turned on yet, so we can't see all the pieces. And it's not until the coming of Jesus that the light is turned on and we get to see the furniture for what it is. We get to see the the, the nature of God, who God is, uh, in, in full reality. But even though it's not until the coming of Jesus that we glimpse that complexity, even from the very first page of the Bible, there's this kind of hint that there's something more something deeper about God than we might think. So in the, in the second verse of the Bible, we find the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And then still in the, in, the, in the first chapter, in verse 26, we have this kind of record of a divine council, kind of a divine meeting, uh, where God says, uh, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. That is, there's this kind of conference within God himself. Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness. It's hardly a full explanation of uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but it's there already in the first chapter. There's this hint that God is uh, complex. Uh, And there are other hints. So in Isaiah 63, uh, there on the outline as well, it says, In all their distress, he too was distressed. That is God. God was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved against his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy uh, and he himself fought against them. The point is in those two verses we have God. uh, God who's distressed. God who sends the angel of his presence. Who's often identified uh, in the Old Testament as uh, Jesus before Uh, He became um, uh, a man. And then the Holy Spirit. So we have God, uh, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together kind of acting in the redemption of Israel uh, in the wilderness. But then, of course, as we come into the New Testament, we find those things becoming clearer and clearer. We have a number of passages in the New Testament that bring the three persons of the Trinity together kind of on equal footing. So at, at Jesus' baptism... I think it's probably one of the most significant occasions. The three persons of the Trinity appear together. So Matthew writes, uh, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, 
At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So we have Jesus being baptized, the Spirit descending as a dove, and the Father speaking from heaven, This is my Son whom I love. Three distinct persons appearing uh, together. Or Matthew 28, which Graham read before, uh, Jesus links at the three persons of the Trinity together. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, or 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And there's other examples, some of them are in your handouts, uh, Romans 1 and 1 Peter 1, and uh, you might also like to look up Romans 5. But the point is that there's good reason, right? There's good reason in the Bible for believing that there's complexity, that there's plurality in God, that God is one God, but three persons. But having said that, I think it's worth digging a, a little bit more deeply into, the, into two of the most common objections that come up to that idea. So two of the most common objections that arise with respect to the Trinity uh, are with respect to Jesus and the Spirit. So Pretty much everyone kind of takes it for granted that the Father is, is divine uh, and that the Father is God. That's kind of taken for granted. But the complexity arises with respect to Jesus and the Spirit. And the objections are actually completely the opposite for both of them, which is just kind of interesting. Uh, so with respect to Jesus, the objection is, uh, was he really God? So everyone believes that Jesus was a person, uh, but was he God? And with respect to the Holy Spirit, the concern is the complete opposite, so everyone believes that the Spirit is somehow related to God, but is he actually a person? Or is he just the life, kind of the life force of God? So it's helpful to kind of think about those two objections a bit more deeply. So thinking about the divinity of Jesus, we can see that in the Bible in a number of ways. Uh, we see that in the beginning of John's Gospel. So uh, the Apostle John sets out at the beginning of his biography of Jesus' life, he sets out um, the, the divinity of Jesus, the, the godness of Jesus. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So the Word is both with God, that is distinct from, from, from God, from the Father, but the Word is also God himself. And then later in that same chapter, John says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So John says, Jesus has made God known in a way that nobody else has ever made God known before. Prophets had come, uh, you know, there'd been priests in the Old Testament, there'd been kings, there'd been all kinds of people who'd been able to show something about God. But Jesus has revealed God in a way that nobody else has revealed God. Why is that? Because Jesus is one with the Father. He's in the closest relationship with the Father. He is the one and only Son who is with God and who is God. Uh, in fact, it's much more likely uh, that verse 18 of, of John 1 should read uh, as the ESV has it. No one has ever seen God, but the only God. 
who is at the Father's side, has ma- he has made him known. Which makes that point, I think, even more clearly. Jesus is not just the one and only Son, but, but is actually the only God, together with the Father. The same thing in Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus exactly represents God to us because he is God, one with the Father and the Spirit. He performs the actions of God. He upholds the universe by his word. And he has the glory of God. Something which no one else has. Now the divinity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God, is is again not just at a point of kind of academic interest, but it's of immense practical importance. Uh, Let me just mention a couple of reasons. One is, if Jesus isn't God, then we shouldn't worship him as God. And to worship him as God is actually blasphemous. We should tear up all, pretty much all our songs, all the songs that we've sung this morning. If Jesus isn't God, we should tear them all up. We should get rid of them all. But if Jesus is God, as the Bible maintains, then to fail to worship him as God and honour him as God is actually a great sin. It's failing to honour him for who he is. If Jesus isn't God, then we shouldn't pray to him either. We shouldn't rely on him. We shouldn't trust him like we trust God. But if he is God, as the Bible maintains, then we ought to pray to him. We ought to pray to him expectantly and in faith as we pray to God. The fact that Jesus is God shapes the whole way that we relate to him. But what about the, uh, the personhood of the Spirit? Is a Spirit really a person, or is he just kind of the life force of God? Uh, well, there's a number of reasons to uh, strongly um, support the idea that, Jesus, that the Spirit is uh, God and a, and a person, uh, and one of the facts is that he's often listened, listed together with the Father and the Son uh, in, in kind of those lists, in those statements, and that suggests that he's as much a unique person as the Father and the Son are unique persons. So take the Great Commission, for example, where to baptise people into the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Um, But that wouldn't make any sense if kind of the meaning behind that was baptise them into the name of the Father and the Son and kind of their general life force, right? It's a confusion of categories. Um, only, Only people have names. Things don't have personal names. Uh, where to baptise people into the name of the Spirit is a person. Um, the criteria for personhood and identity, some people have rightly pointed out, is the ability for self-reference. Right? That is, to refer to yourself, I went to the shops the other day. I did this. I did that. Uh, and as we look at the Bible, that's what we see with respect to the Spirit. The Spirit refers to himself in the first person, I. So, so the Spirit says to Peter in Acts chapter 10, Simon, the Spirit is speaking, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them to you. 
I, the Spirit, have sent them to you. Now you get the same in Acts 13, verse 2, which is there as well. So too, the Holy Spirit can be dealt with personally. So in Ephesians 4, Paul says to the church, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You can't grieve an impersonal force. You can only grieve a person. Uh, in Acts 5, Peter tells Ananias he's lied to the Holy Spirit. Again, you can only lie to a person. You can't lie to kind of something. Uh, in John 14, Jesus says he'll send the Holy Spirit as another counsellor, as another comforter. That is, he'll send another one like he is. Jesus is a personal counsellor, Jesus is a personal advocate, and so too is the Holy Spirit. He's an advocate in the same way. And Jesus' description of the Spirit is a personal description as well. So, in John 14, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. The activities that Jesus describes, uh, uh, sorry, ascribes to the Spirit in uh, those verses and in John 14 are personal activities. So, so what are the kinds of things he describes? He describes knowing, like knowing is in a relational knowing. I know you. Uh, being known, being known by someone, being understood, being perceived, being able to be related to, living with. Those are the actions of a, of a person, one person to another. That's so important, I think, for us to understand. It's so important to understand that the Spirit is a person and not just a force that's important for us to understand because, again, it's a source of profound encouragement and profound practical application. The Spirit is not a blind force, he's not a feeling or a source of power, but he's a person who can be related to, a person who relates to us personally. He speaks to us and we hear him. He lives with us and we know his presence. He comforts us, not as kind of some impartation of, of some uh, you know, thing called comfort. He comforts us as a, as a person comforts us. As the arms of a friend embracing us. He fills us with joy, not as a kind of a disconnected emotion, but as the experience of somebody present with us. He searches our hearts more deeply than our most intimate friends. He visits us in person at the furthest reaches of the world. He speaks for us when we can't speak for ourselves. He helps us to pray when we can't pray. He expresses the deep groans of our hearts because he knows us. He waits with us in our broken bodies as we long for the sons of God to be fully revealed. He helps us as little children to call out, Abba, Father. And he helps us to know that we belong to a family and that that family is the family of God. So it matters. The Trinity matters. Not just intellectually, but in our daily lives. The idea that God is one matters and so does the idea that God is present in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that complicated idea? 
Well, some people have tried to make sense of that in various wrong ways. One wrong way um, has sometimes been described as Unitarianism or Arianism. You don't use those words in polite conversation, but uh, the idea is that they deny that there is a trinity... Uh, sorry, they deny, rather, that Jesus is divine and the, uh, the Spirit is a person. So that's kind of the view of Mormons and, and Jehovah's Witnesses. It affirms that Jesus and the Spirit are not really God at all, or that Jesus isn't God and the Spirit is just a kind of a force. Uh, usually in that view, Jesus is considered to be a God, just not the God, the God of, uh, of the Bible. Uh, but that rides kind of roughshod over kind of the, the teaching of the Bible. Uh, another way to try and make sense of the Trinity is by saying that there's one God but, uh, and there's three persons, but, but never at the same time. So uh, that's called modalism. So that is God appears in different modes. So God is Father, Son, and Spirit, but he kind of changes between them. So some, some days he's the Father, and then the next day he's the Son, and then other days he's the Spirit or something like that. And that takes various... Forms. But that, again, doesn't make sense of the Bible's teaching. We saw the three persons of the Trinity appearing together at the baptism of Jesus uh, and in the redemption of Israel. The early church realized that the Bible's depiction of God is of God as absolutely one, but also complex, three persons. And so they invented this word to kind of summarize that, that is the word Trinity, which just means three and one. Now, try unity, three things together. And the basic idea uh, of the Trinity is, is relatively simple, even if we can't get our heads around it. John Frame, a Christian theologian, gives five helpful points, which are on the back of that sheet there, uh, which kind of give the, give, the, give the outline of what we're saying when we talk about the Trinity. Uh, he says there are five things. One God is one. It's pretty straightforward. God is three, in some other way. The three persons are each fully God. Each of the persons is distinct from the others. And the three persons are related eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We might not understand how all that works, but that's kind of the basic outline of what the Bible teaches. Uh, for your interest, uh, on that same sheet, there's a whole lot of statements, number of statements from the early church which summarise the basic Christian convictions about the Trinity that you can uh, read later. Now, there's no doubt that it's hard for us to understand. There's no doubt that the Bible doesn't really make much of an effort either to explain how it all works. Or it might be better to say, actually, that the Bible doesn't really try to explain what philosophers call, here's another word you shouldn't use in public, um, it doesn't make an effort to describe what philosophers call the ontological reality. <laughs> Okay. That is, it doesn't try to explain the being of God. It doesn't try to explain to us, how can God be one and three? There's, there's no chapter of the Bible that you can go to where it says, well, this is how it works. It just says that that's what it is. But what it does try to explain to us is not that how the being of God works. What it does try to explain to us, though, is how the oneness and the threeness of God works together tries to explain to us uh, how they can, God can relate to each other, the Father, Son, and Spirit can relate to each other, to be three persons and yet be utterly united. Maybe the best place to look as an example of that uh, is John 5. So if you've got your Bible, turn to John 5. Uh, 
Now, John 5 only really looks at one aspect, that is how the Father and the Son relate. But it's a great passage where Jesus himself is trying to explain to people how this works. The Jewish leaders are freaked out by what Jesus says. The context is he's healed a man uh, on the Sabbath, on the day of rest, and the religious leaders think that Jesus has broken God's command to rest. Uh, And Jesus, in his defense, says something extraordinary. He says in verse 17, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, to us, that doesn't sound particularly remarkable. We think, well, that's great. I've been, I was working yesterday as well. But Jesus is using that uh, as an explanation of why he's allowed to work on the Sabbath. You see, uh, the Jewish religious leaders of the day recognized that God himself must be at work on the Sabbath. If God wasn't at work on the Sabbath, the world would fall apart. God must be working 24-7. So God himself breaks the command, or if you like, he, he doesn't, uh, live in the same way by that command to honour the Sabbath that he, that he commands uh, to, to people. So when Jesus says, my father is always at work to this very day and I am working, he's saying, I, can, I don't have to worry about that command because actually, like my father, I'm always at work. And the religious leaders understand exactly what Jesus is claiming. Verse 18, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He was making himself equal with God. They understood that. And they're looking to kill him for blasphemy. But what Jesus does in the rest of the chapter then is to go on to explain how that works. How can he claim to be? One with the Father. You see, what he's claiming, what he goes on to explain, is he's not claiming to be another God, independent of the Father, but to be absolutely and completely one with the Father. Absolutely united in spirit and work and purpose. So look at verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Jesus says, the son can do nothing by himself. He's not talking about his inability in his human nature. He's not talking about that. He is specifically and deliberately explaining what it means that he is the eternal divine son of God. He can do nothing without the Father. Jesus, as the eternal divine son of God, cannot go off and do his own thing apart from the Father. They can't work at cross purposes. The Father over here doing his thing and the Son over here doing his thing, they always work together. The Son can't do anything without the Father, and what the Son does is exactly what the Father does. They're always working in lockstep. What are the things? What are those everything? What is the everything that Jesus does? 
It's resurrection, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, even so the Son gives life to those whom he's pleased to give it. Judgment, verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus goes on to say later that the way that he judges is entirely in accordance with what the Father says. And it's also worship, verse 23. God's desire, the Father's desire, is that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. It's an extraordinary thing to say, that people ought to worship Jesus the Son exactly as they worship the Father. It's extraordinary to say that not to worship and honour the Son is not to honour the Father. But that makes perfect sense when we understand that they are two persons but so intimately connected that in everything they do and in everything that they are, they are indistinguishable. To worship the Son is to worship the Father. To fail to worship the Son, to honour the Son, is to fail to honour the Father because they are indistinguishable. That throughness of the Father working through the Son that Jesus describes in John chapter 5 is not just a function of his existence as a human being, but that throughness has been there from eternity past. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, talk about the Father creating everything through the Son. The point is that there are three persons, but one substance, one being, one God. And each person in the Trinity has roles and responsibilities, but they each work in complete and total and inseparable partnership to execute the plan and purpose of God. So we might say that the works of God are from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't unlock for us everything about the being of God, but it helps us to understand how God can be one God and three persons. And it helps us to understand practically how we relate to that God as one God and three persons. What does it all mean? Well, it means that we are to love one God with all our heart and not three gods. We're to love the Father and the Son and the Spirit together. We're to serve one God, not three, obey one God. But we relate to that God as Father and Son and as Holy Spirit. We relate to a loving Father who plans and purposes and works all things out in accordance with the purpose of his will. We relate to an obedient son who does all that the father does, uh, through whom the father works, and whom the father desires that we honour and love. And we relate to a life-giving spirit who comes from the father and the son, who gives life and who brings the plans and purposes of the father to reality through his majestic son. In the coming weeks, we're going to think more deeply about what it means to relate to the Father and what it means to relate to the Son and what it means to relate to the Holy Spirit. But at the very least, we can see that there is, for us, one God uh, in three persons.
Let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we acknowledge you as the one and true God. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't uh, leave here this morning uh, merely with uh, a more academic understanding of who you are, but Lord, that that truth, that deep truth, that true truth of the Bible about who you are, one God and three persons, we ask that that would inform the lives that we live, the prayers that we pray and how we think about you and how we love you and how we relate to you. We pray that we would give up everything to love and to serve you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to relate to you as you are, a loving Father who plans all things, a majestic Son, an obedient Son who died for our sins and rose to life for our justification and a comforter the Holy Spirit who comes from the Father and the Son to dwell in us, to make his home in us so that we might know you and call you our Father and Jesus our brother. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.